I was thankful that Jesus came to the earth. He left His throne so that He could die for our sakes. And uh, we thank You for that. And pray that You would help this time of the year to be a time of joy as we reflect on that, but also a time of um, considering our loved ones and the people around us who who are lost and dying and heading to hell without Jesus. And, and we pray that You would help us to have clear opportunities for the Gospel. And when we receive those opportunities, we pray that You would help us to boldly walk through those doors of opportunity and, and uh, see You respond with, with grace and changing them as You have changed us. Lord, help us this hour as we reflect on our Savior. And uh, may we have a better understanding of who we serve and why we love Him. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, if you'd like to help out with refreshments, there's a new sign-up sheet, so I'm going to pass that around. And we're going to be turning to Mark's Gospel and spending most of our time there this morning. What do you think of when you think of the word Christianity? What, what do you think some of your coworkers and neighbors and friends would say when they think of the word? Some of the common perceptions that are held by unbelievers about American Christianity are words like judgmental, hypocritical, old-fashioned, and political. In the sense that you know, sometimes Christians can get um, a little bit overly involved in politics. What's that? Intolerant. Yes, that's the new one. Exactly. Um, But what we need to consider is that a a beginning point for this study on Christianity, this this six-week study on Christianity, is not a philosophical system like Buddhism. It's it's not a code of morals like Islam. It's not a set of rituals like some professedly Christian churches present themselves. Christianity, as its name implies, has to do with Jesus Christ. And so fundamentally, what Christianity is about is about the person of Jesus Christ. And we cannot miss that point. So how do we learn about Jesus? If Christianity is about Jesus Christ, then how do we learn about Him? Well, we could go to the library and search under Jesus or do a Google search and we would just be bombarded with thousands and probably hundreds of thousands of resources that point us to who Jesus was. We could go to a Christian bookstore, but even there, the the options that are that, that we see are so broad, and and uh, in, in many cases unhelpful. And so, in both cases, you're getting an interpretation about him based on what people have said over the years, and so on. That doesn't mean that all those resources are going to be worthless. It doesn't mean that your Google search of Jesus is going to give you no value, but but as any good historian will tell you, the best place to go when you want to find out about something is where? To the original source. You want to go to the original source. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We want to look at the original source. And thankfully, God has provided us and preserved for us this original source by which we can understand who Jesus is. We don't have to try to figure out what's going on based on uh, legend or, or um, 
just have word passed down from us, but, but rather we have it in written form that God has given us four biographies of the life of Jesus named, and the names of those biographies are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this study is going to be on the second, second book of the Bible, the second, or the second book of the New Testament, the second gospel, the gospel of Mark. And this, this is uh, the one we're going to use because Mark's gospel is the first gospel that was written. So chronologically, if you think about it, it it's the first gospel. And it's also the clearest and most concise. It's only 16 chapters. And um, Mark is the type of person who likes to just get right to the point. Many of his, one of his um, repeated words is immediately. Immediately this happened, and immediately. And you'll see that as, even as we look, look at it today. Mark was not an apostle himself, but he was a contemporary of, of the apostle Peter. He's a good friend of him. And so in many cases, when we go through this, you'll see that a lot of the stories are from Peter's perspective. And, and, um, and so I think that lends credibility to what Mark is saying. Obviously, the fact that the Holy Spirit inspired these words uh, lends the most credibility. But the point is that, that it could not be a New Testament epistle. It could not be a New Testament gospel without uh, either it being written by an apostle or by a close friend associate of the apostle. And that's what Mark is. I want to um, just make a note here briefly um, that even though that we're um, conducting this study at a Baptist church, this study is not a Baptist version of Christianity. Okay, Over the next six weeks, we're going to study the basics of what it means to be Christian, but it's not exclusive to the Baptist faith. What we're teaching here, what, what you're going to see in the Scriptures here is what is taught in the Bible. And and certainly what, what we believe as Baptists we think is taught in the Bible as well, but sometimes we think that, that we're the only ones that believe certain things, and there are some things as we've talked about before. But, but when it comes to the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, you're going to find that, that um, Protestants in general, Protestants as a whole, are going to adopt these same views as they look at the Scriptures as well. Before we jump into the Gospel, it's important to lay out some background and context so, we need to think about when this was written. This is the first writing of Scripture um, after 400 years of silence. Right? You have Malachi, the last prophet, and then they're waiting for this one who would come and, and who would um, fulfill the prophecies that the, that the prophets had, had given. And there was nothing. And then finally, uh, Jesus comes, obviously, and then shortly after that you have... Mark writing this gospel. Israel was waiting for their Messiah. Messiah came, and he was rejected and killed, and he then was was raised. And so now, God is putting down in written form through this man, Mark, uh, his interpretation of these events that have just taken place. You recognize when when great events take place, when when huge events in the history of mankind take place, God interprets them, and He does that through His Word. So when the the Red Sea was parted, then he also gave Moses to us to be able to interpret those things. When Jesus came to the earth, then he gave us Mark and the other gospel writers to help us interpret what what was going on so that we didn't just have to guess. So let's begin by looking at Jesus' authority because that's really what Mark's gospel is all about. It's about the authority that Jesus has. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. And would someone read that? 
So what does gospel mean? Good news. Good news. Good. So Mark is introducing to us the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ. So we said Christianity is about Jesus Christ. And Mark's saying, here you go. Here's the good news about Jesus Christ. This is what I'm telling you. This is one of the reasons why I say Mark is so concise and he gets right to the point. Just saying, here, here you go. Here's the good news about Jesus Christ. He, he wants to make it clear who Jesus is and this wonderful news that everyone should know. So what does it mean there at the end of verse 1 that Jesus is the Son of God? What do you think that title implies? Okay, so um, he is directly from God. He is God. In fact, when when the the, the writers of Scripture and the early Christians would have looked at this, they when they hear the the phrase the Son of God, they understand it to mean that he is the very person of God. That that he is the very deity of God. He's he's God in human form. Listen to uh, John five eighteen. Uh, well, let me. Get back up to verse 17. Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So listen, listen to that last phrase again. He was calling God his own Father and making himself equal with God. Now, when we call our earthly father, father, we don't make ourselves equal with our father, right? We don't think of it in that term. But but when the Pharisees heard Jesus saying, you are calling God my father, then you're saying that you are the father, that you are God himself. And the reason they thought that is because a son was was a representation of his father, right? The son of is simply the person who is... Uh, uh, representing his father and that's how the the Jews would have understood it. And so the Jews would have been okay saying our father, right? Like Jesus taught them to pray our father who art in heaven, how hallowed be thy name. Um but but to say my father in their view was to speak blasphemy. But Jesus said it that way because he actually was um God in human form. Now, he wasn't the Father. I, I misspoke a little earlier. There, he's different from the Father. He is the Son. But He is God in human form. And so now let's skip down to verse 21 because we want to see Jesus' authority. He's saying, listen, I am God. I am God coming to the earth. And let me show you how you can know that. And he's going to give several examples here uh, of His authority. So verses 21 to 28. They went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do you have with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district district of Galilee. So the first thing that we see is that uh, Jesus' authority as teacher. Jesus' authority as 
teacher. We see that Christ's authority is reflected in His teaching. The people are listening to Him. And verse 22 reads, they were amazed at His teaching. They were amazed. Why? Because He was teaching as one having what? Authority. Not as the teachers of the law. They've heard lots of people teach before. But Jesus is speaking as if He has some authority with what He has to say. It was common for Jewish rabbis and teachers to read from the scrolls of the Old Testament and then quote from all these previous scholars who had spoken about them and then explain the text in that way. But Jesus didn't go back to the scholars when He explained the text. He would read from the Old Testament Scripture and then say, this is what it means. And so, and so he, He's saying, you remember the, the phrase He would often say, verily, verily, I say to you, or you have heard that it has been said, but I say to you, you see how he's speaking with authority. He considered himself to be what? A source or the source of the authority that he was speaking from. He revealed a depth of knowledge and insight that left his hearers, verse 22, amazed, wondering at who he was. That We haven't seen anyone like this to be able to speak with this kind of authority. So the logical question his hearers were asking, and we should ask, is, if this authority didn't come from experts, right, quoting all the previous scholars and rabbis and so on, then where did His authority come from? And how are we going to respond to this teaching? Jesus shows His authority through teaching. Secondly, Jesus shows His authority over evil spirits. The same passage that I just read, Jesus expresses His authority in a remarkable way and We've seen this um, in other parts of Scripture. But ex- explicitly, in this, these verses, we see that Jesus has power over the unclean or the evil spirits. So He has authority in teaching and He, he has authority to do miracles. In this case, He drives out a demon of a, of a, possessed, uh, of a demon-possessed man. And note the response of the the evil spirit in verse 24. He cried out saying, What business do do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Notice that the evil spirit recognizes Jesus by name and accurately refers to Him as the Holy One of God. Isn't it striking that the people that Jesus came to preach to did not recognize Him? In John 1.11, right? He came unto His own and what? His own did not receive Him, right? And then, I love how that next verse goes, by the way, but, but as many as received Him, to them gave He the right to become the children of God. And, but, but His own didn't even receive Him. And yet, you have even demons recognizing, fearing Him in His presence. Remember another time when He came across to the Gerasene region and the demoniac, the man that was, that was uh, possessed by a demon came and bowed down before Christ and and acknowledged Him for who He was. Why such a reaction from the demons? Right? I mean, think about it from the perspective of the people who are watching. What must they have been thinking when this man possessed by a demon says, what do we have to do with each other, Jesus? I know who You are, the Holy One of God. What do you think the crowd is thinking when they see that? See, the, the demons recognized that Jesus was not just a teacher. Yes, He did have authority in teaching, but He was 
the Holy One of God. They understood that He had the authority to judge them and to destroy them. I think it was the same place in that, that other story I was mentioning there in the Gerasene region where they said, please don't send us to the abyss. Don't send us there early. They knew that, that eventually they're going to be uh, eternally judged, but they wanted some liberty in some way. So don't. So we know you're going to send us out of this man, but, but don't send us there. They knew that Jesus had the authority to do that. You remember where those demons ended up, right? In the pigs, right? So, um, so Jesus has the authority over evil spirits. Next, we need to turn to chapter 2 and see this next passage, verses 1 to 12. Jesus' authority. Again, someone read verses 1 through 6, and then someone follow right up and read verses 7 to 12. When he'd come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. They came bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men, being unable to get him, well, get to him because of the crowd. They removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, "Son, your sins are forgiven." But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. So what kind of authority do we see here? To forgive sins. We see actually both, but but the, for your blank there, Jesus' authority to forgive sins. This is remarkable for Jesus to say this, Son, your sins are forgiven, verse 5. But to understand what He's saying and claiming in this passage, we need to understand what sin is. Mark's original audience knew what sin was from an early age, but in today's culture, we don't use the term as much, not in our Christian subculture, but in but in the culture in general. So let's think about that uh, quickly here. What what exactly is sin? How might you define sin in a short definition? Okay. Anyone else want to add to that or? Okay. So it can be done in action. It can be done in word. It can be done in thought. So any attitude. Uh, action or word that is in rebellion against God. Okay, any attitude of rebellion against God, whether in thought, word, or deed. It involves a failure to conform to or a transgression, as Paul mentioned there, to the moral law of God. That we don't do the things that we should do and we do the things that we shouldn't be doing. We do what we want rather than what God wants. We, we put ourselves as authority or as the king, so to speak, of our own lives. 
but sin is not simply failure to live up to your potential. That's how you you might hear it in some of these um, some of these preachers who may want to touch on the the topic of sin, but may not want to offend people. So it's it's not reaching up to your potential. You know, if only you could you could do a little bit more. It's actually a deep personal violation against the holy God and de- demands and deserves condemnation. God is completely holy, and so we are obligated to to obey Him fully, that if we disobey in one point, we have become guilty of the whole law, James 2.10. And so, as a result, we we are sinful human beings. We cannot meet up to God's standard on our own. We cannot meet up to, to what God requires of us. We are masters of making our own excuses. You know, we, we tend to compare ourselves to other people. So we look at our neighbors and say, well, you know, I don't drink or swear or cheat on my wife. Um, so, so if what God is saying here is true, that, that my sins are offensive to Him and that I deserve condemnation, then how much more condemnation does my neighbor deserve, right? Because I'm not as bad as they are. And, um, but the point is that, that we need to stop comparing ourselves to others and start comparing ourselves to God. We are all sinners. We hate. We covet. We lust. We we are selfish. We're, we we have all sinned and fall sh- have fallen short of the glory of God. And we know this to be true because the Spirit of God has made this clear to us. So we are all sinners. But but why does Christianity consider sin such a serious problem? Sin is a problem because the Bible is clear that God both hates sin and He punishes sin. Because when God created the world, there was no sin. When He finished creating the world, He said, Behold, everything is very good. And then He gave a command to Adam and Eve that, that they were not to eat of the tree from any tree. In the, uh, they were free to eat from any of the tree, but, you, but they must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Otherwise, they would surely die. And Adam, our representative disregarded God's command and was justly punished for that. On the day that you will eat it, you will surely die. It started a process, not only in Him, but in us, of decay. And in our creation, as we'll talk about in Romans 8 this morning, that that there is decay going on because of the sin of Adam. And that sin puts us in opposition to God, which is clearly demonstrated in how God removed Adam and Eve from the garden never to return until they were um, completely purified, which is not going to happen until Jesus comes. And so, um, God, because He is concerned about His holiness, has to punish sin. He opposes evil. And so in one sense, we can be comforted by that because all the wrongs and the evils and the terrible things that are going on in the news and around the world and in our own lives and in our own hearts will be justified. They, w- they, will, be, they will be brought to, just- to justice. So in one sense, we can be comforted by that. But in another sense, um, God's hatred and punishment of sin should create in us a discomfort, shouldn't it? That, that, that we are because of our sin in opposition of God because we know that we have had attitudes of rebellion against God and thought, word, and deed. We have failed. And so look at verses 6 and 7. How do the Jewish leaders respond to Jesus' claim to forgive sins? He 
saying, you're speaking on behalf of the devil, right? You, you are blaspheming. You are uh, <clears throat> saying something about God that is not true. And um, you see, they, they rightly understood. I think it's in verse... Let's see, where does it say that? Verse 7. Why does this man speak? And notice that next question there in verse 7. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So they rightly understood that forgiveness only comes from whom? From God. And that was that was correct of them. But they were wrong in thinking that Jesus wasn't God. They're seeing this man in front of him in front of them and they're saying, He's claiming to forgive sins. Only God can do that. They're right. Only God can do that. But this man is blaspheming. Now they didn't say that out loud. Jesus knew their thoughts. And so they want some proof. And so what proof does Jesus offer that he can forgive sins? Because anybody can say that, right? I can go up to someone and say, Hey, your sins are forgiven. Catholic priests do it all the time. Right? Who's going to know if their sins are forgiven or not? Well, an uh, unsuspecting type of person won't know. They just won't know because, um, you know, they see a man of authority and man of the cloth, so to speak, and, hey, he said that my sins are forgiven, so my sins are forgiven. But anybody can say that. And the Jews rightly saw that. Anybody can say that. So Jesus said, because you're thinking that, you think that I can't do it, then let me show you something that's, that's a little bit clearer. And so he proves it by means of a, of a miracle, doesn't he? And what miracle does he use? He uses the one that the paralytic actually came to him for. It wasn't to have his sins forgiven. He came to, to be healed. And Jesus uses this miracle to demonstrate that, hey, I am God. I, my power doesn't come, in from, come from Satan. I'm not making this up. My power comes from God. And so in doing so, he establishes the point that, yes, I have the power to do miracles, but I want you to see that I have a greater power because even demons can do miracles, right? But I have a power that is from God that only I can have, and that is to forgive sins. Notice how Jesus heals the man. He doesn't pull out a scalpel and say, give me a second. You know, I need to prep the room here and, and make sure that I get this surgery done so that he's healed. He doesn't pull out some medicine or give some elixir to him. What does he use to heal him? His words and His words alone. He says in verse 11, I tell you, take up your mat, take up your pallet, and go home. Okay, pick up this mat that, that you've been laying on, grab it, and walk home. I mean, think about the power of your own words. Do you have power in your words to, to do really anything? I mean, God has the power to, to bring into being something that was not. That's creation. Right? The, the theologians call it ex nihilo. That is, out of nothing. He creates out of nothing with simply His words. Jesus can give life. He can give a health to something simply with His Word. And that should remind us when Jesus says, with His words alone, get up. Just with His words, something happens. That should remind us back to what God did at creation. Jesus certainly was active in creation as well. And in this miracle, Jesus shows us our greatest need. Um, and that is, it's not our sickness. Notice what Jesus addresses primarily in this man's life. Not his physical well-being, but primarily his spiritual well-being. 
He was concerned more about him being whole spiritually than he was about his physical needs. And so all of a person's physical well-being, his financial situation, you know, his family relationships, they could all be uh, good and, and fun and, and without any problems. But, but a person could still be in, in deep opposition to God and be uh, heading to an eternal hell. And that, is, that, that tells us that our deepest problem, our deepest need is our spiritual problem. So Jesus, Jesus has authority to forgive sins. And then the next one is Jesus has authority over, what would that be? I, I don't I don't have a blank here. Sickness. Let's do sickness. That's I was trying to think, you know, in terms of what Greta was saying earlier. Yeah, sorry about that. Gave you a blank. Yes, it is sickness. I just see it here now in my notes. Jesus authority to forgive sins and then Jesus authority over sickness. Any questions so far? Comments? All right, let's turn to chapter four. Already we see that Jesus has authority, that He claims to be the Son of God and is not coming based on mere human authority, but the kind of authority that only God can have. And this point is dramatically demonstrated in the passages that we just looked at. But but what we see here now is that Jesus has authority over nature and death. Nature and death. After Jesus taught in Capernaum, where we just were, they headed uh, out unto the Sea of Galilee into a terrible storm. And the disciples here are fearing for their lives. And they try to wake Jesus in a panic and accuse Him of not caring for them because, you know, hey, they're drowning. And Jesus here... Let's see, let's see what He does here. Verse 35. Someone read verses 35 to 41. So even the disciples, after seeing some of these clear miracles and teachings with great authority, when they see Jesus calm the storm, they are just dumbfounded. right? And Jesus says, do you have no faith? He rebukes them for their faith. And, and they say in verse 41, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey Him? In other words, when we think about it in terms of Jewish history, the history of the Hebrews, who is it that has the power to control nature? I mean, and, and certainly first 
thing that that would come to their minds would be the Exodus. That God has the power over all of these forces of nature as they're seen in the ten plagues and then in the parting of the Red Sea. And they say, if Jesus can do this, what does this say about Him? They haven't quite connected the dots. And, um, of course, we see Jesus' power over nature when He walks in the water, feeds the 5,000 with just a few loaves of bread and fish turns water into wine, withers a fig tree, and so on. So he has power over nature. But he also has power over death. Chapter 5, verses 21 to 24. Would someone read those? And then skip down to verse 35. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official, saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Don't be afraid any longer. Only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him, but putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. And taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, Little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was twelve years old. And immediately they were completely astounded, and he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given to her to eat. So not only does he have power over nature, but he has power over death. We read of the synagogue official who has a daughter who's sick, and Jesus is slow in coming to help her. She dies, and when he hears the news, he overhears the news, he says to him, don't be afraid, only believe. And then he enters the room, and everyone knows that the girl is dead, which is why they laugh at him when he calls it, not final death. That's why he calls it sleep. He's not saying she's not really dead. He's just saying this isn't her final death. Uh, he's trying to downplay the incident. Part of there's bigger things going on here that he's trying to protect him himself and his his um, his following. He doesn't want people to follow him just for the miracles. Um, he's not being deceiving in any way. He's simply just um, trying to downplay the the situation. And all the people know that he's. That, that this girl is dead, and he comes in and and brings her life. And what this should say to the watching disciples and hopefully the synagogue official is, who is it that can bring life to those who are dead? I mean, the prophets were clear that only God can do something like that. And and, and so this is a picture that God is painting, that, that, that Jesus is painting here for them to see, that, that listen, this is this is not ordinary. Hey, this is not just some human uh, coincidence. This is 
uh, me coming from the Father with His authority and power because I am God Himself. In verses 16, uh, turn back to chapter 1. See that Jesus has authority over people. Verses 16 to 20. Someone read that for us. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother who were also in the boat mending the nets. Immediately called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. So here we see that Jesus commands the men to follow him, and immediately they leave what they're doing, whether it be jobs or families, whatever. And if you think about that for a second, it's, it's amazing because in a world w- without unemployment insurance or Social Security, they are giving up what is their sustenance in life? What is keeping them alive? They, they give up what they know best to do something that Jesus is calling to them to do. It's, it, it's very similar to what Abram, Abram did in Genesis chapter 12 when God called him to go to a place where he didn't know. He simply had to believe in faith that God was going to lead him. And, and then as he starts to go, God starts to reveal some of these things, what it's going to be what the promise is, and and so on. And that's very much like what the disciples are doing here. They hear Jesus' voice, they follow Him immediately, and leave everything else behind. That's because Jesus has the authority over people. He calls people to submit to His authority, and when His sheep are called by their shepherd, they follow Him. That's what John 10 says. My sheep know My voice, and, and I... I speak to them and they follow me. Right? And and so um, Jesus is is showing his authority as a son of God to to bring followers. Obviously you recognize one of those disciples was an unbeliever, but, but you recognize the overall point there that when Jesus calls someone to follow, they do. So the question that we need to ask ourselves is Will we follow follow Jesus or not? That's what Christianity is all about. It's about the person of Jesus Christ. Let's summarize here what we've seen and then try to make some application for ourselves. First, Jesus has great authority as a teacher. We saw all these ways. Teacher over sickness, over nature, over evil spirits, over death. He has authority to forgive sins. He has authority over people like you and me. He is the supreme master in the universe. Secondly, He claims to be divine. He is the Son of God. Who is it that forgives sin except God alone? And Jesus says, I forgive sin. So that means that I am God. And so He professes His deity and um, that He is God's unique Son, able to do miracles and to demand followers to come after Him. And then thirdly, just like... um, the, the four men that we considered in our last passage, we have a response to make. We must make a decision about who He is and if we will follow Him. So what are you going to do with Jesus? Many times when you ask someone who is Jesus, their answer is, well, He's a good teacher 
or he's a good example that we should follow and emulate. Let's look at his love and how he loved people and cared for people and, and took care of their needs. But, uh, but I like how C.S. Lewis explains why this is one thing that we must not say, that he's simply a good teacher or he's simply a good example. He says, um, and, and your quote's going to come in here, but I'll start with a little bit longer one. I'm trying to prevent C.S. Lewis. I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't, don't, ex- I don't accept His claim to be God. That is one thing that we must not say. So we can't say that He's just a good moral teacher, but I can't ex- expect that He's, or I can't claim that He is God. That is one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the, sto- the, the kind of things that Jesus said could not be simply a moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else else he would be the devil of hell. And so you must make the choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher alone. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So, Lewis basically says we have five options. We can ignore Jesus by simply not thinking about Him, but that doesn't make His claims go away. That doesn't make the truth of who He is disappear. Second option is that we can claim He never existed, despite the the fact that there are historical evidences to the contrary. Third, as Lewis pointed out, we can reject him as a liar, right? All all these claims he's making about him being able to forgive sins, him being the Son of God, we can say that he's a liar. That's a possibility. The fourth option is to call him a lunatic. You know, he's just not clear on who he really is. He's on par with the man who calls himself a poached egg. I've never run into a man like that, but apparently C.S. Lewis either dreamed that up or, or knows people who had that problem final option is, of course, that we can accept Him and serve Him as Lord. So, that leaves us with the question, will we follow Jesus or not? You know, we we can talk all we want about being a Christian and about, you know, we're in Christianity and we understand Christianity, but if we don't have a relationship with with Jesus Christ, then we, we don't know anything about Christianity. Christianity um, is is basically a founded on three primary pillars, or if you want to think about it like a stool. The first pillar is that Jesus is God. That's the one that we looked at today. He has authority. The second pillar is that Jesus is crucified. We'll look at that next week. And then the third pillar is that Jesus is resurrected. And so all three of those are foundational for our understanding of Christianity, our understanding of who Jesus is, and we need to understand each of them in turn. So, what I'd like you to do before next week, and this doesn't take very long, so take you uh, less than 20 minutes, I'm guessing. Mark 1 through 5. Okay, and just read read through Mark 1 through 5. We touched on some of the passage, but it'd be helpful in our preparation for seeing who Jesus is to just read through those five chapters or listen to them. Um, you know, there's so many audio resources that are free now where you can just have the Bible read to you. So it doesn't take very much time, but but give it some careful thought 
and then we'll we'll look at that next week. Any thoughts or questions before we're dismissed? That's the amazing power of the the darkness that that Satan puts over um, the lost, and it also tells us how powerful the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit is on those of us who do see that and do believe. But yeah, I mean, just by sheer rational, you would think, understanding, people would just see those things and may, maybe be able to connect the dots. But that's why the Spirit has to remove the blinders from a person's eyes, our eyes. And He also has to illumine us to be able to see the glory of the, the Gospel. Not only the facts connecting, but also that the significance of it, that this is connected to this person. And so, yeah, that's, um, that's a good observation. All right, let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank You for Jesus Christ. Thank You for His um, saving ability and, and His great power that He comes from You and thankful for His personal care for our individual souls. And we pray that you would uh, change us and help us to see our responsibility to follow him in light of how we look at him over these next several weeks. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.